Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm talking with David Snowden today. David Snowden is the owner of David Snowden Promotions Incorporated. I guess that's the company, right? Yes. I mean, actually, when I picked the name for the company, because it was a very fan-based organization, I actually said, I didn't want it to sound very egotistical, but I wanted people to know who they were dealing with. I wanted to feel like it was a real person. So, yes. And you do uh, band management, management, and marketing of fan clubs, merchandising, License deals, promotion of uh, entertainment artists, and you do some graphic design work for your clients. You've worked with many artists, including Kiss, Joan Jett, Vinnie Vincent, White Lion, Nelson, Vixen, Britney Fox, L.A. Guns, Ice House, Y&T, Dio, just to name a few, although the list on your website is much longer than what I just uh, talked about. Welcome to the program, David. Well, thank you for having me. We, as hosts, uh, I'm, my name is uh, Dan Sauter. And uh, sitting next to me, uh, to my left, is Eric Korn. I'll let him say a few words so you can recognize his name. So when we're asking questions, you can tell the difference between the two of us. Sounds good. Hi, David. This is Eric. So it's uh, exciting to talk to you today and looking forward to picking your brain about your experience and uh, everything, the people you've worked with and some of the stuff you've done. It's pretty amazing achievements. Well, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. So, all right, David, we like to get right into people's stories on this program. It's all about music and people's life experiences related to it. So can you give us a little background about yourself? Where did you grow up? What kind of music were you influenced by in your early life? Uh, well, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore, um, always lived in Baltimore, uh, which is kind of amazing when you think about some of the stuff in the music industry, because so much of it is New York-based, L.A.-based, Florida, but... Um, I always managed to kind of keep my uh, roots here. And, um, you know, my earlier years, I got a lot of the music bug, I think, from my mother, because my mother was a really big Elvis fan. Um, she also really liked the Beatles. I had an older sister who was uh, severely retarded who, who really loved music, and she always had stuff on. So as I was growing up, I mean, I always got to hear that sort of stuff. And then once you start seeing it on the television... Uh, I mean, the Beatles were a pretty visual band, I thought, and Elvis certainly was, too, especially in his later years when he became very flamboyant and uh, had all the really cool jumpsuits and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's really what got me kind of very interested in music then was what mattered to me was the actual music itself, and that's what kind of formulated as I went through life because even when I was younger, my mother saw that I really liked music and she would go out, go into record stores and she'd say, well, I think he likes the rock music. He likes something with a really nice beat. And she would 
talk to the people, and she'd buy 45s for me. Yeah, that's how I got started and all that sort of stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we had Greg Ken on the program a little while ago, and he, he grew up in Baltimore, and uh, he just wrote a book called Rubber Soul, which is kind of a historical fiction book about the Beatles, and he talks about the great record stores in Baltimore during that time period, and, and I imagine that's what your mom was going to and picking out some great records. Yeah, I mean, the record stores around here, it used to be just about every shopping center had one, which made it really nice. And then when you really started to look around, there were places that sold, like, used records, which was even better. Because the used records, they had things that you just couldn't find anymore, stuff that was out of print, things that you didn't even know existed. And that made it so much more fun. So, I mean, I remember when I got my first copy of Kiss the Originals, you couldn't find that anywhere. Oh, yeah. And I called around and kept going through the telephone book, and I was calling every record store. I finally ran across one, never heard of the store before. My mother took me over there. It was about a 20-minute drive, and I felt like I, I, I landed in Utopia because they had all this good stuff. And I only at the time, I mean, Kiss Originals, I think it was selling for like $8, and it was a used copy. And I only had $10 with me, so that's all I got. But every chance I I had, I made sure that my mom would take me back there until I finally got my driver's license and then started discovering even more record stores. And you knew exactly which ones to go to for what it was. And it was nice to be able to walk in there, and they'd go, okay, I have something for you, because they knew exactly what you liked. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and you don't get that kind of customer service anymore. No. So, no, you can't find that anywhere, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I remember going into those stores when I was younger, and it was a lot of fun because you'd get those relationships. And there were stores I'd go into every week like that. The people knew who I was, and we'd talk about music, and they'd go, oh, you got to check out this band. And I remember the first time I went into a record store on my own and bought something. What a What a thrill that was. Do you remember the first thing you ever bought? Mine was actually a... Creedence Clearwater Revival. Wow. Gosh, I don't know if I, if I do remember the first thing I bought. I mean, one of the best record store experiences I had was, I believe it was 1978, when they Kiss had the HBO special. We didn't have cable in my area, but one of the record stores had it. And the guy knew I was a big fan. He knew my mother. My mom went in one day to pick up something for me. And the guy said, HBO, I have it here in the store. We're going to play it in the back room Saturday night. Why don't you bring David by? And my mother took me, and I got to see it. That's so cool. Wow. What first turned you on to the music of Kiss? Well, I mean, I think like everybody else, it was more or less the visual. When you see that first record, uh, I have an older brother. and. He came home one day, he had um, a couple records in his hand, one of them happened to be Kiss Alive, so he saw that and it was just like, wow, this really is cool. And then that following October, I actually got to see Kiss for the first time when they did the Paul on Halloween special. And so the visual and everything was got me at first, what really hooked me was the music, which to me is the fundamental of all of it. Because when you're sitting in your car and you're driving, and my wife and I, we we commute a lot together, and there are a lot of times when she'll be talking to me and I'll get so lost in listening to the radio 
I'm totally blanking out with whatever it is that she's saying to me. And then when the song's over, I have to say to her, I'm sorry, did you say something? <laughs> she probably said, are you listening to me? I think my uh, wife does that every now and then. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, any married guy gets that. Uh, not just every now and again, more often than we should. <laughs> <laughs> so what led you to want to start the uh, Kiss Revolution fanzine? Uh, well, I mean, the Kiss Army had dissolved in 1980 and there wasn't really a whole lot of stuff out there anymore for KISS fans to figure out what was going on with the band and things like that and I used to go through Circus Magazine every month, Hit Parader and I ran across some advertisements for a couple fanzines in Canada actually one was called Black Diamond the other one was called The Oath and through that I started to write and correspond with a lot of people that I met because everybody would list their little pen pals way before the internet days when we could just instantly get a reply from somebody. Um, and I'd write letters back and forth, and before you know it, uh, Kiss was kind of at their all-time low with the elder, and it just seemed like you couldn't get any information. And to me, picking up, and reading 16 magazine just wasn't it for me. And that was the only magazine, I think, at the time that was really covering Kiss. Was that when they, they did the, the little uh, segue into disco? That was after the disco. Oh, okay, okay. Dynasty, yeah, Dynasty was your disco. Then they went real pop on Unmask. That's when Peter was out of the band. Eric Carr came in. That tour seemed like it was a lot heavier because of Eric, with the double bass drum and all that. And then they did the concept album, The Elder. Okay. And, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a confusing time, but I think, um, and I don't mean this as a, uh, to say that women are not as dedicated as guys are, um, because there's certainly a lot of them out there, but I think that, males tend to, when you latch on to something, you kind of hold it. <laughs> and I was kind of like that with Kiss. I mean, I still believed that there was going to be something better. And before Creatures came out, in between The Elder and Creatures, I started getting some telephone numbers and some addresses. I would call the Polygram Distribution Office, and I'd get them to send me some promotional posters. Then I got hooked up with um, Glickman Marks, started calling them, started getting information from them. And from the fanzines that I had gotten out of Canada, just it seemed like I could do that too. And that's why I did. But do you think maybe some of the women stepped away from Kiss also when they lost some makeup? Because it seems like there was kind of a, this hyper-masculine mystique that they had that could have been very alluring because people could put anybody behind the mask. And then when they became unmasked, that mystery was gone. Yeah, some of the mystery was gone, and but it also helped attract a lot more of the female audience once the, the makeup came off because people started listening to the music again. And, I mean, if you look at it back with, like, heavy metal bands, like, you know, I mean, that's what Kiss started out as. Black Sabbath, you know, um, even Van Halen. Though there were women coming to the shows, it wasn't until we actually got into the 80s 
that more and more women started going. And then once Bon Jovi came out, Def Leppard, now you go to a show and it's pretty 50-50 men and women there. But, I mean, I remember the first concert I went to, it was mostly guys. Well, I remember uh, Rush and Kiss were on tour. I can't imagine a lot of women going to that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's not to say that women don't enjoy it. And that's what I said, you know, I didn't mean to make it sound like, you know, uh, you know, women were not as dedicated because, boy, I tell you, I've met quite a few uh, female rockers that are just as, if not more so, than a lot of the guys that I've met. And, I mean, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of different people from working with the different bands, and especially when you started in doing fan clubs, you meet the hardcore of hardcore. And, yeah, and I, like when I started with Joan Jett, I talked to her manager initially, Kenny Laguna, and Kenny said to me, he says, you know, we have kind of a unique fan base here. He said, they actually call themselves Jetheads. He said, it's kind of like the Grateful Dead people. And he said, they're just really hardcore. And, you know, he, he seemed like he got it. And then the more I talked to him, I thought, I wonder if he really, truly does understand it. Because the more I worked with her, at one point I had suggested to them that they hire somebody for their office who was a huge Joan Jett fan. And at first they were a little leery about it. And I said to them, this girl is, is really pretty, very level-headed. She's very intelligent, very smart. And she knows Joan's entire history from the start of the Runaways all the way through now. I said, so that in itself is a very valuable asset in your office. And they hired her, and she really worked out really great for many, many years for them. And I think then they started to really understand that it's, it's the fan base that motivates people, that, that gets things happening. Because even when I started with her, it was uh, after Up Your Alley was out, that record came out, and it was pretty much dead in the water. Sony Music just was, they were like, okay, record came out, we didn't have a hit, we're done. But Joan really believed in I Hate Myself for Loving You. Yeah. So that's when we got together and we started sending out mailers to people, letting them know that we need you to call radio stations. And we'd researched radio stations. We'd get all the different stations in the different areas. We'd send it to people in the different places. And we'd say, okay, here's the radio station in your area. Here's their telephone number. Can you call and request? Joan Jett, I hate myself for loving you. And we've got this venue MTV. You know, Joan's had a lot of hits, so let's call there. they got to dial MTV. Let's get that going. And they were able to turn that into a hit. But that was through Joan's, pers- you know, her, her being so persistent about it because she knew that was going to be a hit. I mean, even when the record company didn't believe in it. And I give Joan a lot of good credit for that. I mean, and, you know, it was kind of nice to see that. I mean, here's a record that, like I said, record company thought it was dead in the water, and it went on being a $2 million plus selling record. Yeah, that's a great example of someone to be able to take charge of their career. And she's always been like that in her career. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Joan, and I've actually probably worked with her longer than any other artist because I started with her back in, what was that, 1988? 
Yeah. So it's been a very long time with Joan Jet. <laughs> That's great. Let's jump back a little bit, back to the Kiss Revolution fanzine. What were you modeling your fanzine uh, after? I mean, you you'd mentioned some uh, magazines in Canada and other fanzines. And then also, what was, at the, that point in time was the Kiss fan? Could you, was there a summary of what the other people that you were sharing your experiences with you would describe? Well, I mean, I modeled the newsletter after what the Kiss Army newsletter was because I had those. And like I said, every week almost, I would call Glickman Marks and I'd ask, what's going on with Kiss? And when the Creatures of the Night came out, the last album that they had with makeup, they sent me a press, re- you know, the press kit and the photos and that stuff. I continued to keep talking to them. I was trying to reproduce some articles that I was getting from different people around the States and in Canada where they had played uh, on the Creatures Tour. And that, to me, is what I wanted the Kiss Revolution newsletter to be. And I was advertising, like, in Hit Prater, in Circus. And one day, I had a kid call me from Massachusetts. And I'll never forget, because he calls, and he's, a uh, very Massachusetts accent. He says, David, how are you? And I was like, I'm good. Who's this? And he says, well, my name's Keith. He says, I have a company. He says, it's called Kiss Off. And he says, and I get your newsletter. He says, I really like it. He says, what do you think if we do a fan club? And I said, well, that would be good. Um, I said, you know, we should probably call it something different because, you know, the Kiss Revolution was the newsletter. You know, we should call it something else. And uh, one day I was reading through the Creatures tour book and it talked about how Eric Carr, you know, how the force of the fans could raise his drum kit to the moon and back. And I was like, oh, there you go, Kiss Force. That sounds good because, you know, obviously you don't want to use Kiss Army. You know, we became partners with the Kiss Force and... Really got to know Keith pretty well over the years, and I mean, Keith I'm referring to is actually Keith LaRue, who is currently running the Kiss Online fan club and website. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, and what we did was, you know, we assembled pictures from fans that we kept meeting while we'd go out and travel behind the band, follow them. We'd go backstage, we'd see the band, we'd talk to the band. And I was always a very persistent person where I wanted to interview them. And I kept talking to Eric about it. And one day Eric Carr said to me, he goes, well, David, he says, look, if you want to do an interview, he says, do me a favor, call the office, tell them you want to do that. He said, I think we can. And I ended up doing one with Eric, which was the very first interview that I did with a member of KISS, which was great because... Here I was, you know, plugged into just a single mono outlet to uh, record all of my stuff. And, you know, he and I talked and had a great interview. Um, It was around that time that Vinnie Vincent got kicked out of KISS. And I tracked Vinnie down. He was actually in a uh, recording studio up in the Connecticut area. And I started talking to him did a few interviews with him. Then I got a call from a guy 
who was a DJ at the WMMR radio station in Philadelphia. Guy calls me up and he says, David, my name is Ken Sharp. He says, I get your fan club stuff. He says, I really like it. He said, you know, Ace Frehley's playing Scranton, Pennsylvania. Have you got a chance to see him? And this was after Ace had left Kiss. He was on a little seven-city mini tour trying to get himself a record deal. So he said to me, do you want to come up and see the show? He said, I can get you two tickets to it. I was like, absolutely. And, of course, Ken Sharp, he's the guy who writes all the best Kiss books that are out there. He just wrote, um, it just came out not long ago, called Nothing to Lose. Just a really great book. And he's written a lot of the authorized Kiss bios and things like that, biographies. When I went up to Scranton, Pennsylvania, Ace played an old movie theater. And I went, ran in, did like every Kiss fan did. I bought two T-shirts because that's all they had for sale. I sat down, I watched the show, and this was when Ace was a five-piece band. He had himself on vocals and lead guitar. He had Richie Scarlett playing lead guitar and singing vocals, John Regan on bass, Anton Fig on drums, and he had a keyboard player named Alter Steed, or Alter Stead. We'd have to look that one up because I'm trying to remember how he pronounces it. But um, in any case, when the show was finished, I really enjoyed it, and I saw a backstage door. And I had been calling George Stewart, who I knew was Ace Frehley's manager. Kept calling him at his apartment in New York City, and he would never return my calls. So when I saw the backstage door, I figured, hey, I have nothing to lose here. <laughs> I went ahead and I walked through the backstage door. I walked past all the guys in the band, minus Ace. I didn't see him. But I walked past all of them, walked up to George Suet, and I looked at him. I said, George Suet. He looked at me. He goes, who the fuck are you and what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and how did you respond? And I tell you, I think I pooped. Because <laughs> I looked at him and I just said, um, my name's David Snowden, and, and I've been calling you, and you won't return my call, so here I am. <laughs> he, looks at me and he, goes, he goes, you know what? He says, you got a lot of balls. <laughs> he says, stand here. And he goes, Anton, come here. Don't let him go anywhere. And I thought, Christ, they're going to take me out back and kick the shit out of him. <laughs> and I'm standing there, I'm talking to this guy. I didn't know who he was. You know, Anton Fig. I mean, you know, you know, and... <laughs> And I'm telling him about the KISS fan club that I'm doing, how we have members as far away as places that are so remote, like South Africa. And he goes, you know, I'm from South Africa. Uh -huh. I was like, really? Uh -huh. And I'm talking to the guys. They autographed a Freely's Comet shirt for me. Richie Scarlett looks at it, and he goes, Ace didn't sign this. He goes, I'll be right back. He runs in the back room. He comes back out. He hands me a T-shirt. It's signed now by Ace. And I was like, this is cool. A couple minutes later, George Stewart comes out, and he says, David, come with me. Walk in, there's Ace sitting in the corner of the room, all by himself. He says, Ace, this is David Snowden. He's doing a KISS fan club. He wants to do an interview. He's not doing it today, because today, he just wants to shake your hand and get an autograph. <laughs> Very cool. So. Yeah, and it was great, because I'm standing there, and I'm like, shit, he already signed my shirt, so I gave him the other shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I, I talked to him for a couple minutes, and two weeks later, I'm doing an interview with Ace at the Power Station studio in New York City, 
where he was recording the scratch vocals to the song Into the Night, which was the kickoff track to his first CD. And that was kind of cool. So that's how I got to meet those guys. You know, everything was just going from one to the other. I mean, even like the very first time I went backstage at a Kiss show, it was on the Lick It Up tour. And I kept calling Chris Lent. Chris Lent wrote a really good book called Kiss and Sell that came out probably about 15 years ago, if not longer. It was during the reunion tour that it came out. Anyway, Chris Lent was kind of their business manager slash tour manager that was out there with them. And I would always get the Kiss tour books. I'd look at it, look up all the names, knew who everybody was, and then I'd start calling hotels. And I kept calling Chris Lent, and he kept telling me, stop bothering him. And finally, on the last call, right before I was ready to leave for the concert, I'm calling him from a telephone booth. I remember telephone booths. That's another thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I called him from the telephone booth, and finally he said to me, he goes, David, he goes, what do you want? And I said, I'd like to meet Kiss. And he goes, all right, then. He says, I'm going to leave you some tickets and passes. I went down to the show, and sure enough, he did. I walked backstage, and first person that walked in was Gene Simmons, and I got to stand there and talk to him, which was great because here I was, an 18-year-old kid, and I'm finally meeting the guys that I love so much. So it was kind of cool. That's very cool. Here is a rare track from Kiss, It's My Life, a demo from 
I also know you continued your relationship with George Suet, and well, he was kind of a mentor. Can you describe that relationship? Well, George, <clears throat> he was initially, he was Kiss's road manager for many years. Yeah. He was actually the guy who first called Eric Carr and called him up and said, hey, why don't you come down doing an audition with Kiss, that sort of stuff. He was on the road with him in Australia. Matter of fact, when they were on the road in Australia in 1980, that's when he met his wife, Linda. And they've been together ever since. Um, but George was Ace's manager, so I really, you know, kept after him about getting some news on Ace. And I was interviewing Vinny and talking to him a lot, putting his stuff in the newsletter for the fan club. And one day he told me that George Silt was going to be his manager. And I was like, oh, okay, that'd be great, because I know George. And then he says, well, he says, I'd like you to do my fan club. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I said, that might be kind of a conflict of interest. And at the time, we were running a lot of ads in magazines to promote, you know, the KISS fan club, where we'd have the guys write letters, and we'd have all the stuff that was included. Um, we did a nice big ad for KISS when uh, KISS Asylum came out, you know, basically, you know, pledging our dedication to the band and that sort of stuff. And we also did one for Vinny. And they appeared in magazines that were almost like out at the same time. And one day I got a call from Chris Lent, <laughs> and he said to me, David, he says, um, so he says, Paul was in the office today. He says, we were going through some magazines. And uh, he said, Paul saw your ad, and he fell out of his fucking chair. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't know. I'm assuming they're referring to the Kiss one. Yeah, yeah. So I went, I went, that's fucking cool. And he goes, <laughs> he says to me, goes, what's so cool about that? I was like, that's pretty cool that Paul fell out of his chair. And he goes, um, he says, maybe we're not thinking about the same thing here. <laughs> uh, and then once he explained it to me, I went, oh, okay, now I get it. And then they told me, you know, look, you know, what you do with the fan club and that sort of stuff, it's really great. It is, at that point, it was independent from KISS, so... Glickman Marks did actually send me a check to join the fan club, which was really nice. Um, you know, that they wanted to know what was going on with it. But, you know, it kind of just sent me for a spin because I thought, you know, I'm not making any money off of this. And I like all the band members. I want to follow them all. And I guess I, did, I didn't understand it at the time. And... You know, so I was talking to Vinny a couple of days later, and I explained it to him, and he's like, well, he says, well, maybe now you should do my fan club. <laughs> and I was like, well, I said, maybe. And he's like, well, you got to call George Suet. So I called George. And George, being the guy that he is, he's like, uh, well, what makes you better than anybody else out there? And I was like, wow, that George man, I mean, he'll bust your balls. <laughs> and, you know, but he was really nice about it. I mean, he just wanted to know why I thought that I was the person. And, um, you know, we talked for a while, and I said to him, well, look, I said, I'm planning on selling my collection. 
my Kiss collection. I said, I can sell that, and I will come up with the money to fund this fan club for Vinny. And he was like, okay, we could do that. And this was before Vinny had a record deal. He didn't even have a full band at this point. And we talked about it. We got it all ironed out. And George was just there for me. And he came to me, and he invited me up to his place in New York. And uh, when I went in, you know, he showed me around the place. And, you know, after you've been on a train for three hours, you kind of have to go pee. So I asked to use the bathroom, and I went in, and I came out, and I said, George, I said, that has got to be the coolest fucking toilet seat I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he had a, it was a clear toilet seat that had barbed wire going through it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, that really is the coolest toilet seat I've ever seen. He said, funny you should say that. He said, because a couple years ago, he said, it was over Gene Simmons' apartment. He said, and I went in and I used the bathroom. He said, I came out and I said the same thing to Gene. <laughs> he said, Gene called downstairs, got the maintenance guy to come up, took the toilet seat off and handed it to me. He said, so, he said, you just peed on Gene Simmons' toilet seat. <laughs> I was like, no shit. <laughs> now, what was kind of nice about that was many years after that, um, Gosh, probably 10 years after that or something, I moved into a new house. George Stewart drove down from New York. He said to me, he says, hey, mate, I have a housewarming gift for you. He gave me that toilet seat, <laughs> which was funny because, you know, toilets are not like they used to. You know, they used to be nice and big, and that was a toilet seat that would fit on that. But, you know. Not so much anymore. I had to... <laughs> Yeah, but I was like, you know, hey, look, I have Gene Simmons' toilet seat, so what more could you ask for? <laughs> but um, while I was in New York, George actually, he was a big Beatles fan as well. And he had shared with me a lot of the Beatles fan club stuff. And he said to me, he says, I want this fan club to be like the Beatles. And he kind of really pushed me to do more with the fan club than what I would have initially thought. Because he said, you know, it's got to be pictures, it has to be interviews, it has to be really good stuff. And, you know, I, I just pushed myself in it and started doing it. And I did that for, you know, the few years that the invasion was together. And then, I mean, during the invasion years, I got to meet a lot of great rock fans. And... Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just that whole area seems to be the place where I meet some of the, some really good people. And I was with Vinny when they were touring with Alice Cooper, and we pulled up on the tour bus to the Tower Theater in Pennsylvania. And I see this really big fat kid. He's outside, and he's holding a sign. This is in November, and it's freezing outside. But he's got this big sign that says, Vinny Vincent is God. So I said to Vinny, I said, hey, I said, check it out. I said, look at the kid over there with the sign. I said, you're going to have to sign it. And Vinny goes, you know, it's kind of cold outside. I don't know. <laughs> and I said, Vinny, look. I said, the kid's out there. He's freezing his ass off. He's got a sign that says Vinny Vince's God. I said, you don't want to stand that sign? Fine. I said, I'm going to go out. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to tell him, let you go in. And then I'm bringing him back. And I did. And when I went outside and I had introduced myself to him, the guy said to me, 
He said, yeah, he said, my name's Alex. He said, I'm number 184 in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion fan club. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, really? And he and I, we have been friends ever since. And um, really nice guy. But I took him backstage, introduced him to Vinnie and stuff, and he and I got to hang out. We would do a lot of traveling together. And one day he had said to me that there was a band in Philadelphia um, called Brittany Fox. And he said, you really ought to go check them out with me sometime. And I was like, you think so? And he said, yeah. He said, I think they're really good. Well, the invasion was starting to fall apart, and I was starting to wonder... I am going to have to start looking at other bands. I can't just make a career out of one. And I sent the package over to their manager, a guy named Brian Kushner. And when I sent it over to Brian, he called me up and he said, wow, he goes, I don't know how you found me. He said, but you know, I've been looking for you. And I thought, shit, what the fuck did I do now? (laughs) And he goes, no, no, he goes, it's a good thing. He said, my guys really like Vinnie Vincent's band. And he said, and our guitar player is actually a member of your fan club. And he said, when we saw the fan club, he said, we were looking at this going, this is what we want to be. This is what we want our band to be like. And they hired me to do Brittany Fox's fan club. Very cool. But we took it a step further because that's when I said to their manager, I said, with a hardcore base of fans. And I could see that just from seeing them one time play the Galaxy nightclub in Pennsylvania. I said, with this hardcore group of fans, I think we can build on this. We can get these people to start calling radio. We can get them to start writing to magazines. And I said, but we need to develop an incentive program. And we would do that. If people would write to a magazine like Circus, Hip Parader, Faces, Metal Edge was real big at the time, if they would write to those magazines and their letter was published in there saying what a great band Britney Fox was, we'd send them an 8 by 10 autographed. Yeah, very cool. And we started, yeah, we started those wheels in motion. Then we started with Doll MTV. We told people, look, if you call Doll MTV and you happen to be one of those people that get to announce the Britney Fox video because they used to record your voice once in a while and just say, hey, you know, um, you know, you call up and you go, yeah, my favorite video is Britney Fox, Girl School. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, do me a favor, just say, uh, my favorite video is Britney Fox, Girl School, or say, you know, hey, this is David from Baltimore, and here's my video. And you would do that, and we would keep track of who all those people were. And at the end of a week, we would draw a winner, and we'd give them something. And then we even did a grand prize one where we actually put one of the kids in a video, which was very cool. That's super cool.
I'm kind of curious. Over the years, how have you seen the internet change the relationship that you've had with fans? And you've talked a lot about working with radio stations, and I know the internet's been a, was a huge game changer for the major labels. But how was it for somebody like you who was on the ground doing promotions, doing fan work? Initially, it was tough because when I got into when the internet came out, I was all for it. Because number one, going back just to my love of music, I'll never forget when I got my first little Tandy computer. Remember them from Radio Shack? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was like the step up from the Commodore 64, I think. (laughs) I still have my Commodore 64. (laughs) Okay, now that shows your age. (laughs) (laughs) But when I first got it, one of the very first services that was out there was their little service that came through them. And I remember going on there, and CDs were, you know, they were out there, and I had certainly had quite a few, but I really liked the band The Babies, and I could never, ever find their CDs. And I remember I I used their Internet service to actually buy all those CDs, which then led me into, well, if these companies are doing it, why can't I? And as time kept moving forward, I got on the internet doing stuff with Joan Jett, getting her website up. When I got back into doing the KISS merchandising, I put that online, and the the KISS merchandising company I had was KISSshop.com, and that was the very first internet store for KISS merchandise. Nobody else had done it, and people were still a little leery of putting their credit card in because they weren't you know, sure if it was secure and that sort of stuff, but it helped, and it was just another aspect to the business. Now, I mean, that's all people do is Internet stores. So, I mean, they're kind of a dime a dozen, and, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic, too, that if you go on Kiss Online right now, put that in, you look at the top, and when you're actually looking at their merchandise store, it says Kiss Shop, which was a name that I had owned for many years. But when I decided to get out of the KISS business, who bought my business? Keith LaRue. Yeah. <laughs> and then Keith went ahead uh, later on, and he made some other moves that, uh, you know, I'd helped him with. And now, God bless him, he's doing a hell of a job running KISS online. And I think that that's a really great thing, and that goes to show you that you can be a really huge fan of a band. And you can escalate yourself to actually work there if that's what you want to do. So, I mean, God only knows there was a lot of great bands that I worked with that I never thought I would. And always loved it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what you've been doing uh, for your entire career. Name a couple other bands uh, and maybe a story or two that you've worked with that are memorable. Oh, well, it's... um I'm sitting here, I'm looking at the walls of my office and (laughs) see a nice, you know, platinum award for uh, Nelson after the rain. Remember the Nelson twins, Ricky Nelson's two kids? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, when they first came out, I had heard that they were coming out because I was still in touch with Bobby Rock. Bobby Rock was the drummer in Vinnie Vincent's band. And I kept saying to him, Bob, you know, you need to hook me up with these guys. I want to do their fan club. I want to do their stuff. And then come to find out, I was told that they already had, like, a friend of theirs doing their fan club. And um, 
there was another band around that time that was actually called Tough. Uh, Stevie Rochelle was the lead singer. He's the guy who now does the Metal Sludge website. And Stevie was friends with the Nelson Twins. I was doing their fan club for them, helping them. And Stevie said to the Nelson Twins, they were explaining to him that their fan club was, like, really screwed up. And Stevie says, you know what? He's, we got the best guy in the business. You ought to call him. And when he told him about me, Matthew and Gunnar said, you know, we've heard his name before because we think our drummer knows who he is. Well, I ended up getting a call from Larry Mazur, who was the band's manager at the time, who at the time was also managing KISS, ironically enough. <laughs> and I went up to New Jersey, and I sat down with him in his office. I talked to him, and... Um, we worked out a deal where I would actually go and pick up the pieces, fix this fan club, and then continue on with it. And I literally got about 40 or 50 boxes. And I mean, when I say boxes, they were almost as big as I am of mail for the Nelson Twins that had never been opened, uh -huh. never been answered. And I just thought, my God, this is a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I spent a good six months cleaning this thing up. And um, I got all finished cleaning it up. I called up Larry. I said, hey, Larry, look, I finally got this all thing just figured out. I think we have taken care of everybody that you guys, you know, owed money to. I had submitted them, you know, an invoice for, you know, what my expenses at the time was, but not actually to pay me because I was going to continue now on with the fan club and move forward. And that's when Larry said to me, he says, well, he said, you know what? He said, I was talking to the twins the other day. We talked to our business manager. Our business manager told us that uh, a lot of his clients, like Linda Ronstadt and people like that, Lionel Richie, they had had problems with their fan club, and you guys have already spent some money on it. It was already screwed up once. Though it's fixed now, they think they should just cut their losses and move on. And I told him, I said, well, that's fine, but I haven't been paid for my time. How about something for me? Yeah. And Larry says, but that wasn't part of the deal. And I said, but no, the deal was <laughs> I would continue on with the fan club, but now you're saying go fuck myself. Yeah. And Sorry, I'm, just, I'm kind of surprised that. With that, I mean, you're, you're talking this epic amount of letters from fans, and what was their justification for cutting and running even? It just it doesn't even make sense. Because they felt like they had already spent so much money with the people that had screwed it up, and I had submitted a couple bills to them for some postage for sending stuff out to people to try to straighten it out, plus what they incurred sending me all this stuff. They had, you know, to them... The fan club was not a profitable thing. It was nothing but a loss. Okay. So by the time I got to it, they had already spent a ton of money. I didn't spend a whole lot of their money, but I got it straightened out. And now I was ready to go, and I was willing to make that fan club self-sufficient. I wasn't even looking for any more money from them. I was just looking to move forward. And for them to say, no, you're done, well... You know, I, I finally said, you know what, at some point, you have to not only put your foot down, but you've got to kind of put your foot up somebody's ass. <laughs> and 
I went ahead and I called an attorney. I spoke to him and I said to him, um, look, I said, here's the deal. I explained the whole thing to him, took him a lot of the stuff, showed him what I had done. He suggested that I send the Nelson twins an invoice for all the work that I had done. So I did a very detailed invoice, did it all out, sent it to him. I get a call from the business manager. Who are you to submit this? And I said, well, I said, here was what my deal was. And, you know, you guys didn't honor your part of it, so I still deserve to get paid. And he basically told me to go fuck myself. So I went ahead and I sued the Nelson twins. And when I showed up at the uh, court office, uh, I sued them here in Baltimore. Their manager, or former manager at this point, he showed up, Larry Mazur, and because um, I named him in the lawsuit because I knew that he could verify exactly what our agreement was. The Nelson twins didn't show up, but they signed affidavits stating, number one, they never met me, which I had had tickets and laminated passes to their shows, stated that they had never talked to me, stated they had no knowledge of me doing anything for them. I mean, it was, it was bizarre. Well, I took in just one box of the mail that I had. <laughs> I, also, I also took in two cassette tapes that had interviews with both Matthew and Nelson on it, wow. where I said to them, hey, you know, we're doing this interview and just letting you know I'm taping and that sort of stuff. And, you know, presented all this to the judge. And when we finally got finished, the judge said, look, he said, Larry Mazur is not responsible for this. He said, you did the right thing by suing him. He said, but we're going to let Larry out of this. He said, because Larry acted on their behalf, which was in their best interest, and they knew what was going on here. He said, so you're not getting anything from Larry. And I was like, okay. He says, but, he said, as far as these two other guys, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, I'm looking at your invoice. He said, I'm seeing what you've done. He said, and I've heard it from you. I've heard it from their former manager. And he said, I'm looking at this going, you should have asked for more. <laughs> he says, but I can only give you what you asked for. And he did decide to rule in my favor, which was great. Except, of course, then, you know, most rock musicians, they're kind of above the law. They kind of did not want to pay me. So I waited all the way up until their next release was ready to come out. And I had a judgment that was filed here in the state of Maryland. I also had it filed in the state of New York, and I had it filed in the state of California. And basically, by filing in those three states, I had an injunction set up where that record could not be released in any one of those three states until I got paid. <laughs> wow. Well, then I finally got their attention. Yeah. Well, I had an attorney in California who went to them. He talked to them. He came back, and he said, David, look, he said, they're willing to offer you $1,000 to go away. I was like, $1,000? That's not even close to what they owe me. I said, plus, it's been a few years, and they owe me interest. And he said, well, he said, my advice to you is, he said, take the money and run. He said, because you're not getting anything more. And I said to him, well, I tell you what. Huh. 
would you would you go back to them? Because you know how musicians work, and there are a lot of them that are very ego based. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I said, go back to them and let them know I will accept that offer on one condition, one condition only. That on the back cover, on the outside cover of the CD, in a 12-point type, <laughs> in bold, has to be in bold, it must say, very special thank you to David Snowden. Oh, man. And he said to me, so you're willing to accept this money, and it's a big loss on what they owe you to have your name on a CD. And I said, no. I said, I got my name on hundreds of CDs. I don't care about that. I said, but I'm telling you, that's my terms for them, that if that's what, you know, if that's all they're going to give me, that's what they have to give me in return. He called me back the next day, and he said, I got all your money plus the interest. He goes, how'd you know? <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That is a great story. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, there's been so many good ones. Like, um, when I got married the first time, we decided, you know, because she was the only girl in the family, you know, her mother wanted to do everything her way. The only thing that I wanted was I wanted to get married at 9 o'clock in the morning which is the most absurd and ridiculous thing you could ever do. <laughs> um, but the night before, Joan Jett had played a place in West Virginia. And they called me and they said, um, David, don't count us in on anything, but what time's your wedding tomorrow? And who showed up at the reception but Joan Jett? And as I said to you, uh, well, her tour manager actually drove her all night long, got her to the hotel where we had the reception. She took a shower, she changed, she came downstairs. And as I said before, my older sister was severely retarded and definitely a very special needs person, but she loved, loved music. And when Joan came in, the DJ saw her and started to play, I hate myself for loving you. Now, my sister Terry... She doesn't know. She didn't understand who these people were. But Joan walks over, gives me a big hug, and my sister Terry, she was clapping her hands, and she just loved that song. She grabbed Joan Jett and made Joan Jett clap to her own song. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, only my sister could do that. <laughs> and, you know, it was, just, it, it was just the best thing. So, But my sister was really good for that. So what else you guys got? <laughs> so that's great. Uh, I wanted to have your uh, comments on Kiss's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. What did you think of that? I think it was great. I mean, it was nice that it finally happened. I don't know if it really means anything more than just having the title of, um, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members. Yeah, I mean, exactly, because it's, it's a pretty uh, weird process that they use to pick bands. But it was kind of neat seeing all four of them up there to receive the award. Yeah, and I mean, I, I wouldn't knock it. I thought it was great. And believe me, if if somebody ever called me from Rolling Stone and said, hey, David, we've decided that you're going to be one of the, you know, sideshow idiots that we put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> no, I'd jump right to it. <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious, if it is with all the bands and all the people you've worked with, is there anybody you haven't worked with that you've always wanted to? Wow. 
That's a tough one. I really don't know. <laughs> um, you know, well, it was definitely before my time, but somebody who I would have loved, well, I was going to say John Lennon, but as far as somebody who's alive, probably Paul McCartney. I mean, I, I love the Beatles, and I mean, I got that from my mom, and um, I really kind of gravitated more towards, you know, John and Paul, obviously, more so Lennon than anybody, and one of the things, you'll see it probably on my personal website, not my uh, business one, but I actually have uh, the word imagine in John Lennon. John Lennon's handwriting tattooed on my arm with some of his uh, lyrics to the song underneath of it. So, oh, um, but Paul McCartney would probably be the one. So, would love to do something with Paul McCartney. So maybe if he listens to the broadcast and he gets over the virus that he has, you know, he could give me a call because I'm pretty easy to find. Well, I was just gonna say he's got a little downtime, and so maybe he will check it out and. It Apparently, everybody I've talked to who's seen him recently has said he is absolutely better than ever. I mean, just phenomenal. Oh, I love all of his stuff. Um, I mean, I, and again, I'm one of those hardcore kind of music fans that if I like a band, I mean, to come here and to see my CD collection, I'm not an internet download kind of guy, not unless I really absolutely have to be. I still go out and I buy the physical CD. So, yeah, do I have, you know... 40 Paul McCartney CDs. Yeah. <laughs> I got 30 Elton John ones, probably just as many on Billy Joel, you know, the Beatles, John Lennon. I mean, I, I'm one of those people that I have to have everything that somebody does when I really like an artist. And I just like so many different ones and so many different variety of artists that I concentrated a lot on the harder rock of bands that I've worked with. But, I also worked with some other ones that were like people would never expect me to listen to, like a band like Ice House. Yeah. Ice House had, they had two top 10 U.S. hits, Electric Blue being the biggest, and Crazy was another big one. Um, I worked with another band, it was a dance band out of Florida called Lanier, Sending All My Love. 2.1 million copies of the single was sold when that came out. Um, even a band like Alias, who I got hooked up with through my uh, people that I was working with at Left Bank Management, who managed Vixen and Richard Marks and L.A. Guns and a lot of bands I did stuff with. Alias had three former members of Heart, who I love, oh, yeah. in their band. But the lead singer, Freddie, and the guitar player were originally in a band called Sheriff that had a number one hit called when I'm with you. And when I hooked up with Alias, I remember listening to the song, talking to the manager, going, man, more than words can say, I think is going to be a huge hit. And when it came out, Freddie, the lead singer, he said to me, if this song goes to number one, he said, I will sing it at your wedding. <laughs> Which, that was the song, and everybody recognized because they had to rename it to I need you now more than words can say. It went to number two. Oh, <laughs> Which I was like, damn, that was, you know, would have been such a good one. I mean, and, you know, thinking of like that and like funny things that happened that you're asking about with bands. I had a great one happen with White Lion. Mike Tramp, hell of a guy. Loved the guy to death. I still see him all the time. 
and now when we get together, sometimes we talk a little business, but it's really like just two old friends because we've known each other for so long. But when they came out with the album, uh, is it Big Game? And I was working that record with them. I was backstage at a show, and quite honestly, I was sitting there checking out women with Mike Tramp. And he and I were having a good time, and the manager came over, and he said to me, David, he said, you know, our new video is coming out, right? Our love is we need to make it number one on MTV. And I said, sure. I said, that's not a problem. I said, I'll give you a call tomorrow, get all the details, we'll make it happen. And then I just went back to hanging with Tramp, and then he came over, and he says, David, he says, you don't understand what I'm saying. He says, we need to make this thing number one. And I said, no, I got you. Hmm. I said, um, what else do you need? And he goes, you're just not taking it serious. He said, we shouldn't have hired you. And finally, I looked at him and said, dude, I'm here right now trying to get laid with him. <laughs> okay, I said, he and I are checking out girls. I want to get laid. I said, this is not the time for business. I said, but look, I said, I'll make your record number one. I said, not a problem on MTV. No big deal. And he goes, yeah. He said, I tell you what. He says, you make it number one, he said, I'll give you $500. <laughs> and I said, I tell you what. I said, I'll bet you $1,000 it goes to number one. This manager looks at me, he goes, cocky son of a bitch, aren't you? <laughs> Mike Tramp looks at the two of us, and he says to his manager, he says, shake his hand. <laughs> he said, I want the two of you to shake hands. He says, it's now official. Tramp looked at his manager, and he said, you do realize you will pay this guy $1,000, don't you? <laughs> and a week later, I called their manager up, afternoon, and I said, Joel, Hey, guys, look, um, Dollar TV, it's going to be on in a couple hours. I said, your video is number one today. I said, do me a favor. I said, I'll see you in a couple weeks. I said, I want you to pay me in cash. <laughs> I said, because I don't want any kind of check or anything like that. I said, but I want cash, okay? And the guy says, how do you know it's number one? He said, MTV always calls us. And I said, well, they've already called me. I said, your video is number one today. I said, so I do want cash. <laughs> <laughs> And it was nice because, and those are like relationships of people that, you know, they understand who you are and how, you know, I mean, I'm the type of person that, man, when I get into something, I put everything I have into it. And I'm just not going to jump ship when it looks like something's going wrong. I mean, I stay with it and I take it as far as I possibly can because that's just the person of, you know, who I am. And... I went on to work with uh, one of White Lion's managers when he was over at Arista Records, did some stuff with Enough's Enough. Um, Brian Kushner, who managed Britney Fox, he also managed Tough. I went on and I do a lot of stuff with him currently. He has me do a lot of layout and design for different TV shows. And that's really cool where I get to do some nice graphic work and then I get to see the stuff in stores and, you know, nothing better than you make this little dopey design well, I call them dopey designs on my computer and next thing you know I mean you got this nice blanket showing up at your doorstep and you're like wow this is kind of cool and some of the stuff I don't I'm not going to say I don't watch a lot of TV but I don't tend to watch any TV on shows that I do anything for so one day I had a bunch of people over we were having uh, big football party, and somebody asked, they said, David, have you done anything interesting lately? They said, you know, I said, just got samples for um, two blankets that I did for some TV show called The Walking Dead. They all uh -huh. freaked out. 
And when I broke them out and I showed them, they were fighting over it. And I was like, well, I don't care who takes them home. I said, I don't need another blanket. <laughs> but, you know, and that sort of stuff's really neat. I mean, especially, like, when you walk into, like, a Hot Topic and you see, like, a T-shirt that you did. I mean, um, if I walk into Best Buy and I see CD covers that I've done, I mean, it just makes me feel really good about that. Um, walked into Target and saw some stuff I did for the first Twilight movie. And that's why I don't watch the TV shows that I do anything for, because I made the mistake of buying the first Twilight movie to see what it was all about, and I never did anything for Twilight after that. <laughs> <laughs> the curse. <laughs> so, yeah, so you just, yeah, you just don't do it. And I'm not a superstitious person, but, you know, damn it, it happened once, and I don't need to have it happen again, so... <laughs> So I'm curious, yeah. is there any bands that you're really into right now that we should be keeping an eye out for? Because from our conversation, I have a feeling that we're going to see them somewhere. So can you give us a shout out for some people that you're really into right now? Well, there's a band here in Baltimore called Silvertongue. Um, you got to love a band that gets their name from a porno movie. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I saw these guys a couple years ago, maybe about two years ago, and I thought, they're an okay band. I took my wife, Kim, and Kim went, and Kim loved it. She freaked out. She's like, God, this is so great. And I was like, it's great. I said, it's angry music. I said, what do you like about this? And she goes, no, it's really good. You got to listen to it. But I wasn't sold. And the lead singer is actually a really big Kiss fan. He came over and started talking to me. And, yeah, I thought, well, he's a really nice guy. And then he started coming over here for football parties, and he kept talking about his band. And then one day he said to me, he said, what is it about our band that you don't like? I said, I don't like your lead guitar player. I said, I just don't like him. And he says, funny you should say that. He said, because he quit the band last week. He said, we have a new guy coming oh. in. He says, can you do a photo session with us next week? And I did, and they came in, they brought this guy, and I looked at this guy, and this is going to, not that there's anything wrong with the gay, it's certainly going to sound gay, but I looked at this guy and thought, damn, if he can play as good as he looks, this guy's going to fucking smoke. <laughs> and he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's one of those things, I mean, women look at it and they go, oh my God, he's so good looking, you know. But he's a really, really good guitar player. And... I ended up going down to the studio the following week after the photo session to take over some proofs so they could see what I did. And um, they were recording a song, and I was like, wow, this song's really good. And I was really surprised because, you know, I guess being in a club and you hear stuff depending on the sound guy, you know. But when I heard it, I was like, now this really does sound like something. And, um, you know, the first song that they played me was actually it's the kickoff song to their CD. It's called Coming Alive. Really good rocking song. Um, and then I kept going back just to see what else they were doing. And uh, the new guitar player they have, ZZ, really nice guy. He's really young. He's only like 21 years old. And he was there in the studio and he's doing his thing. And he kept playing the solo over and over and over uh, for one of the songs on there. And he said to me, he got finished. He says, David, he says, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, you fucked it up about, what, 52 times? And I said, so. I said, what do you want me to say? <laughs> but, you know, really, really good band. I mean, young guys. 
they play really good hard rock. Um, you know, it's kind of like it's very current, but it also has a kind of a throwback feel to it um, because there's some melody and a little bit more uh, melodic to it. But, you know, it's, it's very current. It stands up there with, you know, your Rob Zombie or your Papa Roach or Godsmack type stuff. Um, but I really like those guys a whole lot, and I've been doing an awful lot with them. Here is Coming Alive by Silvertongue. I've been pissed off, pissed at, never been pissed, slap, stepped on, done wrong, man, this week is dragging on, watch the clock, one more day, don't wanna be here anyway, tick tock, watch the clock, gotta build a race of me. one question for you that we like to ask everybody and uh it's what does music mean to you and then i'd also like to throw in a caveat there or an addendum or whatever you will um because you are really people focused so maybe talk about your relationship with people and music well i mean music is just like i said it's it's something that gets me going every day i mean uh there isn't a time that you're not going to find me sitting at my desk that I don't either, if I'm by myself, I have the music cranking way too loud. If there are people with me, I'll have headphones on. I mean, I'm listening to music constantly. When I'm in the car, I cut the grass. No matter what I do, I always have music on. So to me, I love music, and that's just the bottom line. And as far as, like, people and music... Some of the best, some of my best friends and closest friends that I've had, and for 
the longest period of times are people that I've met through music. I and I mentioned a guy, Alex, that I met outside the Scranton. Uh, uh, I met Alex outside the Tower Theater in Pennsylvania. He is still a very good close friend. When I saw the Ace Frilly show, I met Ken Sharp. Ken is still a friend. I met this guy, Jim Rosensteel, who's a computer programmer. Um, he's still a very good friend. And I mean, these are people that are going back over 30 years now. And, you know, I mean, even somebody, like I said, Mike Tramp. I mean, Mike Tramp, he and I, we see each other and we talk about family. We talk about what's going on in our lives. And Mike has been with me through quite a few different things that happened in my life. Every, everything from my older sister dying to my first wife dying to my grandmother to my godmother to my stepmother, uh, stepmother, my godmother, my aunt, and then my mother passed. And Tramp's been there through it all. And the last time I saw him, he called me and he said to me, he says, David, he says, I'm so excited to see you. He said, because I want to meet your wife. And, you know, so it's like to me, you know, you start meeting people and they just become friends. And we don't ever talk about or people come over here and, you know, they'll see all the gold records and awards and stuff like that. And I'll look at them and say, you know what? I love that. I'm very proud of every one of them. But, you know, to me, it's, it's all about people. It's about the people that you meet. And when you start establishing those friendships and relationships, it's just the best thing ever. And it's nice, too, when you meet people that have that, you know, same common bond. When you can put a song on and they already know the song and you guys are both sitting there kind of rocking to it. That way you don't even have to talk to each other and you just get lost in that song again, <laughs> you know. Well, oh, believe me, when I, uh, my, my wife, Kim, when her and I started dating, she was so funny because we'd get in the car, had Sirius XM radio, and every time a Kiss song would come on, I'd block the dash and I'd say to her, you know, who is this? And, then, you know, if she didn't guess Kiss, I'd have to look at her most of the time and go, do I need to pull this car over? Because, you know, you can get out. <laughs> And she started to know exactly what the Kiss songs were. She knew what the song titles were. She got all of it. And even when we got married, she wanted to walk down the aisle to kiss forever. She wanted them to play Lick It Up when we cut the cake. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was so fun because when we got married, I mean, I sat down and I made sure I picked all the music. And... You know, it was probably some stuff that most people were like, God, this is not wedding music, but you know what? It was our wedding. And it was a lot of fun because, you know, there are business people that are outside the music industry that were there at the wedding, and, you know, they all said to me afterwards, you have quite a, you know, varied group of friends. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I don't pick my friends by what they do for a living. I pick my friends by the people that are good people. And those are the ones that you can always pick up that phone, and no matter how long it's gone by since you talked to them, they're the ones that's going to jump in that car and they're going to come right over and help you if you need something. So, Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, and that's what music has really brought into my life and what has made it so important to me. 
And that's why when I sit down and I listen to stuff, it's great to be able to look at a visual band like how, you know, I said that's how I got in, you know, started with Kiss and introduced to them. But, you know, looks only go so far. At some point, there has to be something more to it. And I can honestly say that, you know, I can still sit down and listen to a Kiss record today and enjoy it just as much as I did as when I was, you know, 10 years old because it still means that much to me. And, you know, but it's that way with all the bands. That's why I said, you know, like the Beatles and, and the Stones and that sort of stuff. I mean, I just love that. And when you meet people that are all into that, I mean, I, I love it when I have a very good friend of mine who owns a tattoo parlor, which we go to show you, you know, when somebody owns a tattoo studio, what kind of wedding I had. This is actually the guy who married my wife and I. <laughs> But I love it when I go there and people are getting like an Iron Maiden album cover tattooed on themselves or the Stones logo or, you know, a kiss face or something on the, and it's like, wow. And I just, I'll sit down and start talking to people. I don't get into about anything that I've done in music or stuff like that. I just start talking to them about music because I look at it as my job is my job. It's kind of like if you're a plumber and the last thing you want to do is you go out and somebody goes, oh, yeah, you know, I got a piece of broken pipe. Why don't we talk about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's the same sort of thing. But I'll sit there and I'll talk to you about the music and what it means to me and, you know, how much I love a song. And I'll probably even sit there and debate with you over, you know, why you said you like this song instead of that song on a record. But that's what you do when you meet people, you know, and you become friends. You know, I mean, I love music so much that I went ahead and had them uh, tattoo music notes on my arm. And the guy even said to me, he said, well, if I'm going to do the music notes and stuff, he said, is there a particular song that you want? And I said, well, I don't read music. But I said, my favorite song in the world is Tears of a Clown by Smokey Robertson. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I said, so, I said, if you know what the notes in the bars to that is, <laughs> I said, you can tattoo that on there. And when he got finished, I looked at it, and I said, I don't know if it is or not. I said, but that's what I'm telling people, because that's what it means to me. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so you're uh, working with Silvertongue right now. Uh, what other projects do you have on the horizon? What's next for you? Oh, boy. Um, always doing different things for the uh, some of the TV shows um, do a lot for Supernatural. Um, somebody made the comment to me the other day. I tend to do a lot of stuff with um, the women in TV shows because it's a lot of the older ones like Xena and Charmed and Buffy. And those are really great shows because, you know, they also have really big cult followings. So even though the show isn't around anymore, it's, kind of not uncalled for, you know, unheard of that I get a call and they say, hey, can you do a t-shirt design or maybe a bumper sticker or a lunchbox? Um, and that's always neat. And believe me, I'm like a kid in a candy store. If I do something new, um, I did a little uh, dopey uh, rubber bracelet for the TV show Supernatural. And I didn't even realize it, but my stepdaughter, that's like her favorite show in the world. And when I got the sample, and I, I, you know, I, I was so excited to see it, and I ended up giving it to her because it meant more to her than it would to me. Yeah, sure. You know, 
but it, it meant something to me because I was like, wow, I did this. I, you know, I haven't done a, a wristband before. It's kind of cool to see just how it turned out and you learn from your mistakes like anything else, what I would do different on the next one, that sort of stuff. And, but when she said she liked the show, I was like, okay, great. You know, it's yours. And, but, um, yes, I have a lot of that going on. Um, I have another band, um, they're actually a blues band that I do some stuff for called the Kelly Bell Band. Um, they've actually been around, I think, next year. They're going to celebrate their 20th anniversary. And they've been voted the top blues band in the Mid-Atlantic area for at least 15 years. It's kind of a, an eclectic little uh, base of uh, music that they have there, but it's very heavily blues-based. Um, so I do a lot of stuff for them. I actually... Uh, designed a new t-shirt for them today and uh, some press kit stuff. So, you know, there's always a lot of things going on. I wish I could think of everything. It's just, it all kind of gets jumbled and it runs together. <laughs> Where can people go to uh, see your designs and learn more about everything you've done? Uh, I would say Facebook is the best place because I have the company page on there, which is facebook.com slash David Snowden Promotions. You know, or if you go to my personal page, you know, you can find it there by seeing where it is that I work. That's really the best place. I mean, that seems to be the page that I update the most. And a lot of times I, I, I even forget to update things because if I design a T-shirt or something, I don't put it up until it's actually available. And sometimes, you know, you might have a lag time of like two, three months before it hits. The same thing with, uh, like, blankets or lunch boxes, things like that. They got their production time. Um, and by the time I put some stuff up, I'm like, wow, it seems really old to me. Or by then, I already hate the design. Um, but that's my nature is to always want to do one better the next time. Hey, you know what I'm thinking about? it. You know what was a really good story? Sure. So we can go back to that? Yeah. Um, back in uh, 2000. Kiss had announced a farewell tour, that sort of stuff. I was having, uh, with me selling all the Kiss merchandise, I actually started having some of the vendors come to me. And they would say to me, um, Sony Signatures was the merchandising company at the time who licensed all the Kiss product. And they'd say to me, um, you know, Sony Signatures says that we can't sell to you. And I'm like, really, why? And they said, well, quite honestly, you're kicking their ass when it comes to sales. And I'm like, get out of here. And they were like, oh, no. And there were certain clauses that were put into contracts when people would sign licensing deals with Kiss. It would not say, do not sell to David Snowden because you can't do that. But it would say things like, not for Internet-based stores. Must be for retail store only. Not for mail order. You know? Well, at the time, I had a retail store, I had an internet store, I had a mail order store. So I still was able to get things, but they were making it increasingly harder. So Kiss had announced a farewell tour, and I thought, you know what? It's one of those situations where I thought I just had enough, and I had a guy approach me who had worked with Kiss on a lot of videos that they had done, especially during the Hot in the Shade Revenge era, and... He asked me about putting together a KISS videotape. So we did something, and we called it KISS Unauthorized. We bought some footage from different people that had some really cool KISS footage. Didn't have any KISS music in it. 
it did have some guitars that are in the background that were credited to a guy called Mr. Blackwell. Mr. Blackwell, as it turns out, played guitar and Kiss for 12 years. Kind of easy to figure out who he was. <laughs> but when I did that video, I get a fax. On Kiss letterhead, dated March 31st, 2000. And I happened to open something, I found this. And it says, it's to me from Gene Simmons. It says, David, you have crossed the line. <laughs> now, at that point, when you read a letter and somebody starts off with, you have crossed the line, at that point you have to just say, you know what, I think I've reached the pinnacle of my career. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the letter goes on, it says here, I have instructed KISS Legal, Universal Music Legal, our licensing and merchandising legal departments and other legal avenues to serve you with advance notice that we are going to immediately ask you to cease and desist. First, immediately hand over all copies and all receipts for this unauthorized use of KISS trademarks and copyrights. If we do not hear back from you via fax within the next 24 hours, I have instructed our legal representatives to take all necessary and full legal action against you and the entities you represent and to come after you and your company legally, Gene Simmons. Now, hearing that letter, Gene didn't say what it was for. Ah, interesting, yeah. I knew what it was about. It was about the videotape that I did. But me being me... I went ahead and I typed Gene a little letter back. Dear Gene, thank you for your letter dated March 31st, 2000. Uh, what is this in reference to? I get back my note and written on the top in his handwriting, your unauthorized video. <laughs> well, I basically sent him back a two-page letter, cited the different, uh, you know, trade acts and things like that, and told him that what is on that video is mine. You do not own it. There is nothing on there that you own. Any pictures that are on there, I have purchased and licensed. Any videos I purchased and licensed. The music is not KISS music. It is original music being played by somebody that is on the background. It may sound very KISS-like, <laughs> but it is not KISS. Well, never heard anything again. Ran into them a couple months. Hmm. I'm going to say a couple of years later, and I happened to be in New Jersey. They were there, and um, Gene walked over to me, and he says, David, how you doing? I said, I'm doing well. And he said, I just want you to know, he said, that was very well played. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell him never mess with the man who has your toilet seat? <laughs> Oh, well, you know, at this point, you know, I can always just wrap it around my head and say, Gene's already shit all over me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and that's one of the things that, too, that you really start to learn in this business. And I think it's a really important thing if anybody ever really wants to get into the business is that you need to be able to separate your personal from your business. Because if you don't, you're only going to drive yourself nuts. This has been great. You've got uh, some great stories and some really good insights. Uh, and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank David. you very much. All right. Thanks again, guys. Right. Have a good night. All right. Bye -bye. All right. Good night. Bye. And we leave you with a rare demo by Vinnie Vincent Invasion featuring Mark Slaughter on vocals. This one called Shoot You Full of Love. Shout you love. 